good morning, Olive Branch. It's great to see you guys, and we are going to be diving into a new series this morning called Long Story Short. In fact, if you're a guest here, you got a special treat, probably, uh, probably one of the things you've rarely ever done in your life, and that is we're going to study an entire book of the Bible this morning, the entire thing. So it'll be kind of fun. We're actually going to do that over the next four weeks. We're going to take all the short books of the New Testament. They're one-page books. You know, all the ones that we said we read, we read through the Bible. We thought, yeah, it's only one page. Skip. No, it's going to be a, it's going to be a good time. I think it's going to be an awesome experience to uh, roll through these four books of the Bible. So if you would, before we get started, let's pray together. Would you join with me? Bow your heads. Father, thank you for the opportunity that we have to just get into your word and to be transformed by it. There's so much in just one page of the Bible that we are sometimes underestimating the, the, the intelligence that you have. You can pour so much into one page that can change not just us, but culture and everything else. And God, as we dive into that this morning, would you just give us an opportunity to just really see what you are doing and to contemplate how it may affect us and how we are living in this United States and in this world that you've given to us. And we pray that you would bless this time, help us to apply these truths in Jesus' name. All God's children said, amen. Well, he was probably lost at times, worried at times, confused at times. But as Onesimus roamed down the roads of Rome and looked at the giant pillars and columns that stood before him, looked at the slime and scum that filled the center of the streets, and as he watched the hustle and bustle of politicians and other slaves like himself move around in the, in the rhythm of what we knew as Rome, we probably would have thought this looks a lot like Washington, D.C., because it was. It was, a, it was the center of power for, for the Roman Empire. It was the place that Onesimus was trying to escape to because he was the most anonymous there. Now, Onesimus was a slave of a man named Philemon who lived in a, in a city called Colossae, well over a thousand miles away. And he had found himself not wanting to stay in his master's home and so rose up, stole some items, disappeared in, in the night, and walked the Appian Way, which was the superhighway of the Roman Empire, all the way to Rome itself, probably hawking and selling the things that he had stolen as he went along the way and then gathered enough coinage and enough money to survive, but his money had run out. And in some series of events, Onesimus found himself desperate, walking around as almost a homeless man in the midst of a Roman empire, trying to figure out how he was going to live, where he was going to go, and then he heard it. He heard that this man named Paul, a man who had come and preached to his master Philemon, and in fact started a home in his master, or started a church in his master's home, and he decided, you know what, this is it. I need to find him. He was accepting. He was a man who talked about accepting people and the love of God. And as he roamed around the streets, he finally found the home that Paul was sitting in, having been arrested for being a Christian under the emperor Nero, who had hated Christians and despised them and wanted to get rid of them, found himself in chains. And Paul, sitting there chained to another guard of a Praetorian guard, which was the top level guards of the time period, Paul would preach the gospel to them. Well, Onesimus winds up inside, probably guided in by a friend who noticed him named Epaphras, and drug him in to see Paul. Instead of Paul holding on to him for the mandatory three weeks that you had, and then you had to give back the slave or else you were going to be arrested for thievery, he kept it silent and instead evangelized Onesimus, brought him to faith, and then discipled him up. 
So you can imagine the shock and confusion when Philemon one day answers a knock on his own door back in Colossae, a thousand plus miles away, and there stands his runaway slave with another man named Titius holding three letters from Paul. We know them today as Ephesians, Colossians, and the book of Philemon. And this little book, this one-page scroll, this small, the smallest of the three, it was, would have been opened up after having opened the seal and read by Philemon and realized this wasn't a personal letter. This was to be read to the whole church. And in this letter was such a drastic, powerful, transformative message that it is still affecting the world to this very day. And this is the book that we're going to dive into this morning. In fact, if you would like to join with me, we can read this letter on page 1000 in the Bibles under your seats, and um, we can have that opportunity. If I can get this uh, to advance, please, that'd be great. So um, we're going to go to page 1000 in the Bibles under your seats. Otherwise, Philemon is kind of this very easy to miss. You can open your Bibles and you might wind up in the New Testament. If you're like Matthew, Mark, Luke, go right, go further. You see Corinthians, keep going. You're going to see all these T's and you hit Titus. It's the next book over. Otherwise, if you're in Hebrews, go back one book and, and you'll find it. But Philemon is one page and it's written by Paul. And so here are these these men show up and Paul begins to open up the conversation. And we start here. He says, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother. Just so you guys know, the opening of, a, of an ancient letter doesn't open like ours. We're like, greetings. And we just move on, say everything we say from us. You know, we write our, who it's from at the back end of our letters or our emails. Unlike the, uh, the, old, the New Testament time period, they wrote who it was from at the beginning. And so right at the beginning, it says, this is who this is from. It says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved worker, Anapia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. So this is not a personal letter only. This is written to Philemon. Philemon's the owner of the home that the church was meeting in in Colossae. His wife was probably this lady, Aphia, and this might be his son, Archippus, um, who is a fellow soldier, probably the pastor of the church. I, I like his Greek name better than I like how we translate. Archippus makes it sound good because his Greek name's Archipu, and I just think that's cute, you know? It's a little Archipu, you know? It's Pastor Archipu. Oh, so we, 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 we buffed him up a bit. So anyway, the, it says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. He begins to speak to Philemon. Because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus Christ and for all the saints. And I pray that sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. So he starts right off, and he, it's a commendation. He's like, guys, guys, Philemon, I want to tell you, the church and your love for the church, it's awesome. So excellent how you guys care for each other, how you love each other. In fact, when I pray, I remember you. I, I remember your love for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith. Now, some of us are like, evangelism, telling people about Jesus. Actually, this is the word koinonia. It means the fellowship of your faith, the sharing of it between each other, the gathering together, the caring for each other. It's the James Projects, guys, that you guys engage in and you share and care from your skill base. It's the small groups that so many of you are involved in and where you're praying for each other. You're holding each other up through life. And we know what that translates to. Lots and lots of difficulty because that's pretty much what life is. It's the opportunity for us to gather together to barbecue, to pull all the aspects of our church together, to care and love on each other. 
So good. And Paul is commending that. He's saying, so excellent. You guys would love on each other and share with one another and do these things. And yet there's a, there's a kind of a, a but in there. He's like, listen, I pray that the sharing of your faith, this koinonia, may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that, is in, that you have is in Christ. And this is this full knowledge. What does he mean here? He's saying, guys, do you realize something? That there's more than just the fellowship. So a lot of people in, in, in Corona, and especially in Corona, that will, will stay in churches until a certain point, and then they'll go find a different church. Because they want the fellowship. They want the, the small. They want the, the knit, the family. And that's not bad. It's good. He's saying it's good. He said, I just hope that that family doesn't become the only thing that you want. I hope that that family leads to the fullness, that it goes deeper. Because the faith goes deeper. The Christian belief system goes deeper than just what happens on a Sunday or in a small group. It goes deeper than what happens in your home. You see, our culture wants you and me to turn our faith into this little private thing where we got this, this little Jesus that we carry around with us. Yeah, we got, a, our, our, we got our little Jesus. And we take our little Jesus out and we put our little Jesus on the table when we sit down and hopefully you do this and you, you have a conversations with your kids as you put little Jesus in the center and we have conversations with Jesus. Maybe you go to your quiet time, you pull out your little Jesus, you talk to Jesus. Or maybe you're, maybe you're here at church and we put our big Jesus on stage. We're like, look, it's big Jesus. But we all take our little Jesus out. And we go, look, you look like big Jesus. Oh, I love my little Jesus. My little Jesus is so good. Maybe you even take your little Jesus with you occasionally, um, you know, with you out. And because you're listening to sermons or podcasts. But, but the culture tells you, you know, what you do with your little Jesus when you come to the party. You need to put little Jesus up on your shelf and leave him at home. Make sure you put your little Jesus up on shelf before you get in your car in the 91 so you can make sure you get business done, right? Make sure you take your little Jesus out or put him in the glove box at least so he doesn't know what you're doing in the car on your way on the 91 or whatever. But when you got your little Jesus, we are informed by our culture to take your little Jesus and leave him at church, leave him at home. He has no place at the workplace. He has no place at the party. He has no place at the football game. He has no place with the friends when you're coaching your kids. That's where MVP comes out. That's where GPA comes out at school. That's where, the, that's where you get the good parking, lot, parking spot and you do what you need to do to make things happen at work. Don't you dare bring your little Jesus in here because he's your little Jesus. That's what the world tells us. And it's not true because this Jesus is Lord of all. He says, don't just let your little Jesus become a fellowship thing. Don't let him be a little Jesus. Let it go deeper. Let it be the full knowledge of every good thing. Not some good things, every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. You say, Greg, why are you bringing this up? Because what's interesting is the context of this statement. It doesn't look like much until you realize a runaway slave is standing in front of his master and this runaway slave who has stolen something has now become a Christian and this whole relationship has been radically altered so much so that this book becomes the very acid that the abolitionists would use to dissolve the horror called slavery. That's how powerful this little letter is going to become. When the church was told, it's not about your little private Jesus it's about what this Jesus who is Lord of lords and King of kings does when he enters into people, into societies, and transforms everything. Guys, we're not, we're not dealing with some small, ignorable book. We're dealing with something that transforms. See, God doesn't want this to stay our little Jesus. He wants our faith to change all of life, every aspect of it, from work from when you're out with the sports, the 
kids, from the sportsmanship to the way that they deal with their school, to the how we act together when we're out in our workplaces, to even how we're driving on the freeway or talking to those association members of our HOA, you know? Changes the way that we deal with ourselves. Changes the way that we live life. And you know what? Everybody's got got a cause. It's almost like the first thing I want to ask people anymore. If you're below like 30, I want to go like, so what's your cause? You ever notice that every young guy, every young person, they got a cause. I got a cause. Maybe it's, maybe it's beating slavery away because that still exists out there in a lot of the Arab nations and even in the United States. There's still a certain form of disgusting slavery that's being imported into our very ports over here in, in LA and Orange County. And so you're fighting sex trafficking. You're dealing with that garbage. Or maybe you're, you're after poverty and you want to see it destroyed because you're sick and tired of seeing people suffering in the squatter settlements across the world and the kind of suffering you even see in the inner cities in the United States. You're saying, we need to fight that. Maybe it's foster children because you're like, you have a foster kid and that's the thing. Maybe it's taxation and you're sick and tired of how much taxation is out there. Maybe it's HOAs like mine, you know. It's that whole idea of like, I just know two things. Taxation, HOAs went away. Slavery would end and all the, I'm just kidding. No, the point is that we all have a cause, something that gets us going, something we wake up to deal with. But how do you change it? How do you really change it? You know, we, we can throw money at it because some of us, that's what we do. We make good money, so we're like, I, I believe in this cause, I can give money to that cause. Because honestly, when we step back and we go, how can you change such huge, massive things like culture? I'm one person. My vote doesn't even count, maybe you think, anymore. And you're sitting there going, I don't know what to do. So you start social media. You do whatever you can. Maybe you volunteered for a certain group, a United Way or some other thing like that. So you can say, I want to get part of Habitat for Humanity. I want to make a dent some way. I buy Tom's shoes. You know, that's what, maybe that's what it is. But the point is that There is a way to cultural change, and this book has it. The gospel changes our cultural institutions. It transforms them. And that's what this little book is going to tell us. In fact, Paul picks up and begins to move forward as this book begins to actually lay out a way to bring cultural change. Starts here. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you, he's talking to Philemon again, to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus. So Paul's probably roughly in his 60s at this point, which is an old age for the ancient world. He is in chains. He's been jailed, and it's not necessarily the best thing in the world. He's gone through massive amounts of suffering. You read that in other books of the Bible. But now he's, he's turned in a personal appeal. He says, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus. This is the runaway slave, whose father I became in my imprisonment. He says, I saved him. I brought him to faith. Formerly, he was useless to you. And this, at this point, he starts playing with the name Onesimus. The name Onesimus in translation would mean beneficial. He's a slave and his name is, big, is hey, this is beneficial. <laughs> oh, is he beneficial to you? Not really. And that's kind of the thing. He was like not beneficial to him originally. He was useless. But now he's become useful. He's become his name. He says, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. Now, heart for us is like, oh, my emotions. Yes, my heart. Um, this actually isn't the term cardia, which is the typical word for heart. This is the term splegna, wonderful, wonderful term. It means your guts. See, they had a different way of feeling emotion in the ancient world. Same way of feeling it, but they had a different way of explaining it. We say everything is from our hearts. Oh, it's from my heart. No, they had it from their gut. Whenever it was a friendship, whenever it was a brotherhood, it was, I feel it from my gut. It's something that attaches me to them. I just, ugh. 
It's my man. All the guys know what I'm talking about when you say, it's my man. He's like, oh, it comes from your gut. It doesn't come from your heart. It's my man. Yes, Okay, so he's not saying, I send you my heart. He said, I send you my gut, my man. That's what he's saying. This is my guy. I care about this guy. I die for this guy. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this is perhaps, note this verse, this is the highlight verse. If you highlight anything in this book, this is the verse that changes everything. For this perhaps is why he was prepared for a while, uh, prepared, uh, was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, Philemon, both in the flesh and in the Lord. This is what we're going to break apart from here on out. Those two verses, that sentence shifts everything. It's con- and that sentence brings everything else into focus. See, because he says, listen, there is a way that you're supposed to treat Onesimus now. And that way will transform all of the cultural barriers and boundaries and ways that we deal with each other. And the first way it does that is it begins to break down cultural change. It begins to shift this, it brings cultural change, breaks down all these cultural barriers. And he started with one simple thing. When Onesimus showed up, the law stated he could keep him for three weeks until he was considered a thief. But he didn't care. He said, you know what? I'm going to teach you about Jesus. I accept you. Oh, you're a thief? You should be thrown in jail for stealing from your master. In fact, probably killed. You know what? No, I'm going to give you grace and I'm going to love on you. The house isn't going to fall in on your head. I'm going to tell you about my Lord. And so the step one of cultural change, guys, fascinatingly enough, begins by going across the street and sharing the gospel. Share good news of Jesus with others. You say, really? Yeah. No other world religion does this. Say, well, of course they don't. They don't believe in Jesus. No, I want to explain something. In every other world religion, you're put in a pecking order. Either you're going to become an amazing person who has prayed like crazy in your mosque, and you have done all the pillars, and you are a good Muslim. You have done these great things. You've advanced beyond belief. The Mormon church does the same thing. You've got to advance to these certain levels in which you are more and more holy. And there's actually differentiations between who's holy and who's not, and all this stuff. You get into Buddhism. The closer you are to enlightenment, the more spiritual of a guru and kind of things you are. The more sacrifices you do in Hinduism, the more lives you've gone in whatever caste system your level of caste you're in depends on how you present yourselves to others. The more power you have in paganism presents whether you're going to be a priest or whether you're just an ordinary person. Every single religious system in the world puts you in a pecking order save one. Now, unfortunately, we've tried to make it into a pecking order, but Christianity starts at one simple place. It says, hey guys, guess what? We're going to pull the sheet back and show off what we're really like inside, and that is we are all messed up, broken people. I don't care where you come from. I don't care what color your skin is, what socioeconomic ladder you stand on. Whether you're in a casteism or another religion, you pull it back, the same thing is true. Every single one of us are sinners and we're messed up. You want to talk about a great equalizer. You want to talk about something that levels the playing field for every human being on the planet. It puts us all in the same boat, the same sinking ship. That every single human being that ever dons their, their face in this church, drives by on that freeway, shows up in the middle of the halls of the United States, all is equal to us because we're all messed up sinners before God, judged and condemned. That's not good news. 
That sure levels it out. Meet a proud guy and you realize he's just like me. You're not better than him because he's proud. We're just as messed up. And until we're willing to see that, until we're ready to realize that, hey, we're no better. As Christians, we're the mess ups. We're the blind people who just found food. We got to go find blind people to help them find where the food is. We are just the people who are sitting around realizing, I don't got nothing. You don't got nothing. Jesus has it all. Let's go there. And there's a spiritual pride in the church, even, yes, even at Olive Branch, that can be dangerous because what it does is it causes us to back away and think, hey, you know, I've been a Christian long enough. You know, I can draw a line here. Those are non-Christians. And what we mean by that is almost like a pecking order. Like, well, you know, I'm spiritual there are not. And then when you really engage with people out there in the world, you start to realize, oh man, they're better people than I am. Oh man, they treat their kids better than me. And your, your faith is going to have a crisis because you forgot. Level one, we're all equal. Some of us are good people in some places and we're all mess ups everywhere else. You got places in your life that you do excellently and we all bank on them. We all show them off. We all show off our our prowess with our finances or our ability to be good parents or our educational status. We're all banking on our strengths. So everybody thinks, hey, these people are all good. But once you pull the sheet back as the Bible does, you realize, oh, once you get past a couple of those things, their, their marriages are just as messed up as ours. Their kids are having as many struggles as ours. They've got substance abuse, just like some of us have substance abuse. They've got lying in their life. They've got all this stuff, or they're just proud because they don't. And they got it all put together, and they'd love to show you that they've got it all put together. And guys, the bottom line is, we're all mess ups. I love that this is how it's put here. Paul is the one talking here to his protege, Timothy. He says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. You want to memorize something? Here you go. That Christ Jesus came into the world to do what? Say it out loud. To save sinners. Of whom Paul then says, I am the foremost, the chief, the capital, number one. If there was a top ten list in heaven who was going to hell, I beat Judas. persecuted the church, killed Christians, enjoyed doing it, and thought he was right before God. But I, he says, received mercy for this reason. Here it is. Why would Paul be saved? That in me, as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. In other words, so everybody else who's got a messed up life could look at me and say, dude, if God can save him, you know, we, what do we do? We make Paul a saint. We turn Paul into the guy that we all want to be like. And he's going, don't do that. I'm just like you. In fact, God saved me to show you that you can be saved. Because if he can save a mess up like me, he can save a mess up like you. That's why every pastor who's a good pastor, I believe, stands in front of people going, I probably shouldn't be up here. If you guys knew my life and you knew my thoughts and you knew the mess of my life, you'd be going, that guy can't be a pastor. Because we all know we'd rather have Jesus be the pastor, amen? It doesn't matter what church you go to, where you go, small, bigger, or medium, the guy on stage is equal to you. He's a messed up sinner because the gospel starts us there. If you dug into his life, you'd be like, we need to ex- not only get this guy off stage, we should excommunicate him, kind of reality. And the truth of the matter is that God saves people like me and people like Chuck and people like Mike, people like Greg Laurie, 
as examples that, hey, look, we can all get saved. We're all in the same boat. We all got sin, which then moves to the next level. Christianity doesn't leave you there. It doesn't turn into a pecking system. It just says, there's the solution. If you take the solution, now you're just a family together. We're, and Jesus loves his family. He brings you into the family, makes you part of the family, and he ain't going to throw his family into hell. He's going to bring his family in. He's going to nurture it. He's going to transform it. And he's going to make it his, and he's going to relate to us. You see, sin keeps us from God, but Jesus gives us opportunity. And that opportunity with, of a relationship with God is for everybody. It's for everybody. We're to give that message to everybody. There's nobody who shouldn't hear that Jesus loves them and has an opportunity for them. I've got some, some interesting neighbors that are about five houses down from me. And they, they, he walks with a limp. He wears a turban on his head. And he's an interesting looking guy. Nicest guy in the world. Scariest dog I've ever seen. Has the same limp. It's kind of interesting. But I am building up my courage just to say, stop and say, are you guys Sufi? Are you guys Muslim? What are you? I want to talk to you. I want to know who you are because I want to tell you about Jesus. See, Onesimus lived in the home. He heard the preaching. But nobody asked him if he wanted to get to know Jesus until he had to run away and meet Paul. And Paul took the first step in the transformation of culture by saying, I care about your life. And hear me, I'm talking to you. If you're here today and you know that you're a messed up sinner, Jesus has died for your sins. He has given you access to God. You don't have to do anything but trust that he has given you that. And your life has changed. And that's where it starts because then the next thing is that we don't stop there. He was once useless, it says. Now he's useful. Paul took the next move and he discipled. He led him in the way of Jesus. And we should lead others in Jesus' way. And it's a very simple way to love God and love others. That's radical. There's false teaching. We'll talk about false teaching next week. But to love God and love others. And what happens is we'll either emphasize one or we'll emphasize the others. And so we have this beauty of we love God. And that means that our lives should look radically different because we love God. In fact, Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. That's how he defined love. He says, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. It shows your devotion to me. It shows me that you're after. And so guess what? Unlike what a lot of the culture is saying about Christianity and what we should believe, where they're telling you, look, you can be a Christian, but you don't have to change your sexuality. You can be a Christian, but you don't have to stop being greedy. And you can be a Christian, but you don't have to use your money differently. Oh, you can be a Christian, but you don't have to stop partying. You can still sleep with your girlfriend. You can still live in before you get married. Yeah, yeah, that's not all in the Bible. Don't worry about it. No, that's a lie. When you come to know God and he changes your heart, you have such a passion to know him and such a passion to love him, you'll change these things because you'll realize he's Lord over your sexuality. He's Lord over your finances. He's Lord over your attitude and your personality. He's Lord over how you treat people, how you run your business. He's Lord over all. And you can hear Paul saying, let it go deeper. Let the fullness come in. Come on, don't just hang it out here as a simple little Jesus you put up on the shelf and you take him down when you need him. No, he is your Lord. And that's what starts with seeing God, loving God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. You need to love God. Now, that sounds very conservative. And many, and all my conservative churches would be like, amen. 
And you walk over here on this side, and he says, love others. And this love is a radical love, where you would give your life for your enemy, where you would pour out your own finances for people who are going to waste it and throw it away, that you're willing to do crazy things for, to care about a homosexual, even move into their own neighborhoods, to get to know them and talk to them and minister to them and pour into their life. Even if it's a terrorist or a Muslim, you'd move to their country just to get to know them, just to connect with them and to give them that opportunity. Guys, we would love them with a radical love, and we'd accept them with where they're at so that maybe when they finally find Jesus, God will change them. But that sounds so crazy liberal. This is the gospel. To love God and to love others. To radically love God and radically love others. Yeah, it's going to make us look really different. And we're going to draw lines, very strong lines. But we're going to love others and it's going to make us not afraid to enter into a messy world as Jesus did and not create a bubble around us so that they, we just keep that stuff out. Just keep that stuff out. Now, how about we just go out to it and just realize there's no bubble. The junk we see out in the world is the junk that's in our hearts. Start at the center move forward. This is what it means as we learn these two processes of obeying Christ and obeying his command to love God and love others. It radically turns into something powerful. It turns into a cultural change agent because what happens is first you see the life change you see the changed heart, then the lives change, and then culture changes. It starts with the life, moves to the heart, or starts with the heart, moves to the life, and then moves to this cultural change. Onesimus, a slave, is suddenly radically changed in the heart by the gospel, begins to repent, probably volunteered to go home, knowing he had to make it right. The discipleship made him useful. He comes back, and then here's what Paul tells him. Do not receive him simply as a, as a bondservant, but as a brother. He tells him, now it's time to treat him differently. He's not a slave anymore. He's your brother. Try, try making your brother your slave. What kind of wicked heart do you have to have? Can you even uphold the institution of slavery if they're your brother? And you see the gospel seeping into a very powerful cultural institution. One third of the Roman Empire were slaves. And suddenly it starts to seep into this and change things. You see, it's the difference is we poured all our time and effort in the last 30 years into politics. And we said, we're going to make cultural change through politics. And I have no problem that we did that because I do think you have to do that. But I think we were looking for an avalanche, not a glacier. What do I mean by that? You can see an avalanche just like, boom, breaking trees and messing up valleys and um, taking down homes and skiers are scared and they're riding away. You know, whatever is going on in that picture for you, you come back a week later and you're like, where was that avalanche again? You can't find it. All show and gusto. Just go to a Glacier National Park. Unless you see the, the ice break and fall on the ground, it is the boringest day of your, any trip you go on, isn't it? Wow, ice. Whoa, look at all the ice. Because what you don't see is that over a thousand plus years, that ice is moving so imperceptibly and form and grinding so hard, it shapes Yosemite by the time that it's done. Which would we rather have? Avalanches or Yosemite? And so the cultural perception is that this isn't changing, but if we keep going across the street, keep going next door, keep loving people and giving them the gospel, keep teaching them the truths of Jesus, equalizing everybody that we're in the same place, eventually we can't look at somebody with different skin in a, in a way of racism. They're our brother in Christ. 
You can't look at somebody who's poor or rich and say, well, they're X, Y, and Z, because guess what? It's equalized us. They're our brother and sister in Christ. Regardless of what, how big their house is or how small their hut is, regardless of what continent you find them on, if we claim Christ, we're family. And that's why it ultimately, the gospel ultimately changes the way we approach each other. It transforms it. He says, no more, not as a bondservant. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant. As a beloved brother, especially to me, how much more to you? And I think what we're missing is the fact that this bondservant stuff, we get slavery, it's different in their time period. And we're like, why didn't he just say, free him? Just free him. Just be outright. Just, Paul, say, free him. Well, he can't say that, one, because it doesn't change a whole lot. He could have freed him, but poor Onesimus would have continued his life as a freed man, which meant you're just a slave in the Roman eyes. See, after we set our, our slaves free in the United States, we entered into a time called Reconstruction. But you know what? Most people who, were, who lived in the South and were black continued to face slavery just in a totally different way. It continued in, in the institutions of the Jim Crow laws and the separate but equal concepts that is very anti-biblical because we were supposed to treat them as brothers. Last time I checked, yes, my sons are brothers. I don't have a brother. But I think it's very immature of my sons when they decide that their brother is their enemy and they go after each other instead of realizing, no, we're brothers and there's something else we need to deal with here. And so yesterday at the park, I was proud of my son, Nate, when he was able to stand up because some little kid was pushing his little his little brother, Andrew, around, got in the way and received a couple punches for it. But the bottom line is that that's what a brother does. He defends. He loves. Sure, we have our spats and our frustrations. Remember, we're sinners. But a brother, where we treat each other with love, respect, equality as family members. And guess what? Nobody's the older brother. That's Jesus. We're all those equal brothers and sisters beneath the oldest. And we all pick and poke and we all get to pick family all the time and it's kind of frustrating, but that's the point. The gospel breaks down human boundaries of caste and class because we are brothers and sisters in Christ. It equalizes us. It transforms the very nature of how we deal with each other. It gives us an opportunity to really see grace at work. And so you got to ask yourself, where in your heart do you say, I am better than X? Who in your office do you think you're better than? Who at your school do you say, you know what? I feel so good I'm not like. And we pray the prayer of the Pharisee. Who in the church? Who is it in our, in, in our, on our block? And that's the danger, guys. We can easily become spiritual Pharisees. It just sinks in. It steps in. And we forget we're on that equal ground. Because if we forget that, as Philemon was forgetting that, he ignored the very people in his face. There are some of us in this church that do not know Jesus Christ. And you feel like you're skirting and safe. And, and I just want to beg you to hear me that I don't want to ignore you. We don't want to ignore you. We want you to know that Jesus loved you, died on the cross for you, and bore your sins. And it's time for you to stop pretending you're a Christian and humble yourself and just see we're all messed up. We all need the same thing. It's an opportunity now to come clean and get right with God. Don't hide. We're not here to go, I knew you were a sinner. Hey, found one. That's not how it works. We've all sinned. We've all broken. No stigmas. We can't hold people to their past. Oh, that's the worst person. 
That's what the church used to do. And it got into this Phariseeism so much that we forgot how to love others. Yes, we want to love God. We want to spur each other on to loving God, but we forgot how to love others so that we can't even be real with each other. And he hides, and you posture, and you fake it, and ultimately we fail at being what we're called to be as the church. And maybe some of you are out here going, you know, I felt useful once. I thought I was useful but, you know, I've done this horrible thing. You know, God has a plan for your life no matter who you are. You may be struggling right now to keep the, the doors open of your own house. And you feel like a failure. You feel like you've misused and mismanaged because you went to FPU and you were called stupid. And you're going, I'm stupid. And now you're afraid to let anybody know that you were stupid. Well, from one stupid person to another... <laughs> It's okay. God still wants to use you. You may feel like you're a failure because you never finished school or you never got that diploma. You're, you're a hardworking individual making ends meet, but it's week after week and it's blue collar and it's rough and you're eating the beans and you're eating the potatoes because that's what's cheap and it works. Amen. God still wants to use you. You may be 80 years old, pushing on the 90s, going, I don't know how much time I got. It's not looking good. I'm feeling the aches, the pains, the we all this stuff. God still wants to use you. He doesn't use just young people. I'm so busy with my kids. I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm forgetting my own pants when I run out the door because it's just nuts with these kids. And I just don't, I can't be used by God right now. I need to time out. God can still use you right where you're at. Don't. Keep yourself from seeing that God can use you in the state and place that you are. We create way too many boundaries. We create way too many things. Even on ourselves, we say, hey, we need some people to help. And we're immediate with, this is why I can't. Really? As family, don't we want to care for each other and help each other out? I think we could find that way. And maybe you feel like I can't be used and so you've not jumped in. God can use you. God will use you. And sometimes it's in small, imperceptible ways. Don't let culture, don't let these things stop you. Which leads me to the last thing. Paul ends with this. He says, so if you consider me your partner, receive an SMS as you would receive me. That's a big statement. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. To say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you and the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. In other words, nudge, nudge. Better make him, let him out. Let him free. Treat him as a brother. In fact, let him make a decision even to come back and serve me. Let it be his decision. That's what's going on. In fact, what's strange is there's a man who shows up in the, second, in the, the end of the first century, second century, who is the bishop of Ephesus. His name is Onesimus. And many feel it's the same person that Philemon did what was right. Let him go. Let him be free. He chose to go back to Paul. Probably trained under Paul after Paul was beheaded, got up and came back to Ephesus to lead the church. 
and found that he was one of the most spirit and strongest spiritual guides because he didn't allow that stigma to hold him back. He kept going and Paul did something else. He paved the way. He said, I'll pay off the debt. I'll do what it takes to make sure that you have that opportunity. And some of us need to step up to pay off each other, to carry each other's burdens so that we can move forward into ministry. I hate the amount of student loan debt that is holding back so many ministers in our culture because we've lied to people to get an education for a cost that's ridiculous. Your pastors are suffering in this nation because we have made them pay so much. The worship pastors are suffering in this nation and the students and others in this nation are suffering right along with them. That's a horror, but we've done it. And if we're going to help care for each other, we've got to figure out how we're going to solve this. It's not going to be done by individuals. It's going to be done by communities. And the call here is community care. I'm pulling together and doing this stuff. And Paul says, that's what I'm going to do. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say, and at the same time prepare a guest room for me. For I'm hoping that through your prayers, I'll be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, sends his greeting to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And he ends it there. Very public statement. He says, guys, you should aid each other to do God's will. I'm here to aid you. Jesus Christ aided you first. Think about what he's doing. Paul is living the gospel in this letter. He says, I'm not going to comply. I could tell you I'm the apostle, but I'm not going to. I'm going to let you choose. Because you know what? You could tell Onesimus what to do, but I'm asking you not to. I'm asking you to let him make the decision. I'm going to model for you the very freedom in Christ because I'm going to treat you as a brother. I could pull out my apostle card, but I'm not going to. Because I want you to do what's right. I want you to be mature in your Christianity. I want you to see how deep this goes. I want you to see how radically life-changing and culture-changing this is. Don't have a little Jesus and put him on the shelf. Church is what he's telling us. Let's live this in every area of our lives, at our schools, in our works, everywhere we go. Because when the gospel seeps in and the love of God and the love of others grows through us, it changes blocks. It changes communities. It changes taxation. It changes slavery. It changes the world. And how do you do it? Just go across the street. Just go next door. And go with Jesus. Did you bow your heads with me? You know, this morning, you may have come and you're ready to hear whatever was available, but you heard that God loves you. He's loved you so much, he gave his son on the cross for you so you could be part of his family. Yeah, we're all sinners. We're all in the same place. I hope you can agree with me on that. And you know what? If there's a Christian in this world that's made you feel otherwise, like you couldn't be a Christian because of how they acted, maybe negatively or even positively, I'm just asking that you would hear me. I want to ask for forgiveness on their behalf. They didn't represent Christ very well. But God knows you. He knows your mess. He knows your struggles. He knows your sin. And what he offers you is the opportunity to be forgiven, to have a relationship with him. And all you have to do is what everybody does to have a relationship with God. Trust that Jesus Christ took your sins on the cross. That he took them there, bore them for you so you don't have to, and invited you and made you part of his family. And then you get to have that relationship of knowing God and loving others. 
And so this, this morning is a perfect time for you to begin that journey, to receive that forgiveness. And if that's you right now, that forgiveness is offered to you. I ask you, would you please receive it? It's your choice. And if that's you this morning, you'd like to receive that gift, then I'll give you a chance to let me know. I want to walk you through a prayer where you can talk to God about it. But just let me know by putting your hand up. You're saying, that's me. I need that forgiveness. I'm there at that level, and I need God in my life, in that relationship. Amen. Where you start is as you talk to God, you just begin with just uh, kind of saying, hey God, hey, here's my sin. He knows what they are, but you're just kind of letting him know that you know. It's called confession. The next move is real simple. It's called repentance. You like turn away from your sin in your mind and you turn to God and you ask him to take that sin and tell him you trust that he's put it on Jesus. Ask him to forgive you. And the last part is beginning that relationship. Ask God to come into your life to begin that relationship. Now that the sin's dealt with, ask him to enter in and to lead you for life. And God, for those in this room who are indeed praying through that with you and kind of stumbling, thank you that you hear their hearts and there's no magic formula. I pray that you would confirm to them that you've forgiven them and that together as a church, we could lift each other up as a family. Thank you, Lord, that we are not better. We're just as bad and just as much in need of grace. Help us to live in that in Jesus' name. Amen.